Well, again, good afternoon. It's great to see you all here today. It's really good to be with you. Apologies for the lack of lights at the back. Apparently, they had a wedding here yesterday. Somebody fused the lights at the back, so it's in darkness. So you can probably fall asleep. I won't be able to tell because it's all just kind of gray back there. But the folks near the front, there's no excuse because I can see you all. So just to warn you. Now, if you haven't seen Mr. Bates versus the post office on TV, then I'd really encourage you to do so. It's a great TV drama, and it's fascinating and gripping to watch. It's great TV, but much more importantly, it tells the story of the biggest miscarriage of justice in British legal history, which led to around 700 people being convicted and 236 people being wrongly imprisoned. Utterly staggering. It's a miscarriage of justice on an epic scale, and it's both tragic and it's outrageous. If you haven't watched it, please watch it. Be prepared to be outraged. Be prepared to be really annoyed by the end of it. And I can't imagine what it was like uh, to be an innocent sub-postmaster or postmaster going about a business, then suddenly you find yourself being accused of a crime that you haven't committed. And then losing your business, and often your friends and your reputation in the community, and all for a crime that you hadn't committed. Often your friends going, and then eventually for 236 people, losing their freedom as they were locked up, some for six months, some for nine months, for crimes they never committed. It's the biggest miscarriage of justice in UK legal history in terms of the numbers of people who were involved, and it was and it is absolutely outrageous. But as terrible as that was, it was nothing compared to the greatest miscarriage of justice in world history, which took place when the Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect man that has ever lived, was tried in an illegal trial, was sentenced to a horrific death for a crime he didn't commit. The trial was illegal. It didn't follow the rules laid down for Jewish trials. It took place in secret at night, which was against the law, and there was no evidence to convict Jesus. There's been some terrible miscarriages of justice throughout history, but the greatest of all took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago when the perfect, sinless Son of God suffered a mockery of a trial and was then condemned to the most horrific form of execution ever invented. If you watch the TV series, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, then you see how some of those around the people who were wrongly convicted abandoned them and wanted nothing to do with them. And the same thing happened to Jesus. Although in his case, pretty much everybody abandoned him and fled, except for two of his disciples, Peter and John. But as we're going to see today, uh, today, even Peter turned his back on Jesus for a while and denied that he was one of his disciples and denied that he even knew Jesus. So we're going to read our passage today, which is all about Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. It's John chapter 18 and verses 15 to 27. We've recommitted our, or, or restarted um, our studies in John's gospel, and Joel picked that up for us last week at the beginning of chapter 18. So we're going to read from John 18, but we're going to read from verse 12 just to give us a bit of context so you know where we're at and the kind of context of the account. So John chapter 18 and we're going to start reading at verse 12. So you've got a Bible handy. There's no excuse because there are Bibles everywhere in this church. They are literally everywhere you go. So there should be one near your seat, or obviously you can use your phone. Um, but you know what I think of that. So pick up the Bible up and, and, and read a real one instead. So we're going to read from verse 12. John 18, verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with, with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. 
Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if only one, sorry, it'd be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they'd made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Jesus was taken first to a man called Annas. And Annas had been the Jewish high priest. But then he'd been deposed by the Romans and replaced by a number of people, but eventually replaced by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But the Jewish law stated that when you became high priest, you did so for life. So for most Jews, they still thought of Annas really as being the high priest, even though the Romans had removed him from the post. Most of the Jews thought of Annas as the high priest, even though Caiaphas was now the one that was filling the post. So effectively, there were two high priests. Caiaphas was the official one, but Annas was the one who had the real power, and he was the one that most of the Jews thought of kind of in their head as being um, the real high priest. He was the one who had the power. As Jesus was taken firstly to see Annas and then to Caiaphas, Peter and what John calls another disciple, which was probably John himself, the writer of this account, they followed at a distance. And assuming it was John, John went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to stay and wait at the door. Because although it seems that John was well known to Annas and well known to Annas' staff, Peter wasn't. But then John managed to get permission for Peter to come into the courtyard as well. And Peter and some of the high priest staff and some of the other officials waited in the courtyard, keeping themselves warm by the fire on which was obviously a really cold night. Now Luke's account, we're obviously reading John's account, but Luke's account of this event makes it clear that Peter could see inside the high priest's house. And he could see Jesus from where he was stood. And in turn, Jesus could see Peter. Jesus, by this time, was upstairs being questioned by Annas. But from where he was standing, he could see down into the courtyard, and he could see Peter. And we have these two accounts taking place at the same time. Jesus, on the one hand, is being illegally questioned by Annas, whilst Peter is stood by the fire, denying that he knows Jesus, and they can actually see each other. And the contrast between the two couldn't be greater. It couldn't be starker. Jesus, the one who is the truth, telling the truth in his illegal trial, whilst Peter at the same time told lies as he stood by the fire. Three times Peter is asked if he knew Jesus and if he was one of his disciples, and three times he lied and he said no. Peter had promised to follow Jesus wherever he went. 
And he promised that he'd lay down his life for Jesus. But when it came to it, he denied that he even knew him. Jesus had chosen Peter to be one of his 12 disciples and to play a really key role in leading the early church after Jesus returned to heaven. And as you, if you go on into the book of Acts, you can see that really key role that Peter played in the early church. And on one occasion, sometime prior to the events that we've just read about in John, Peter proclaimed his belief in Jesus as being the Christ, being the Messiah, the one that God had been promising to come and be his chosen king. We find it in Matthew 16. This is what it says. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked the disciples. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, or in other words, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus chose Peter, and God the Father revealed to Peter what Jesus' unique and uh, divine identity was. And it was Peter's statement of belief in who Jesus was that the church would then go to be built on. Peter, his belief in Jesus and his statement about who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that would be the rock upon which Jesus would go on to build the church. Peter means rock, and, and Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. And that's why Jesus said here that Peter was blessed. What an amazing role to be chosen by God to play. What a unique role in, in the history of the world, in the history of the universe, but especially in the history of the church, to be this person upon which the church was built. Amazing and, and, and a unique role, and what a blessing to be chosen by God to do that. And yet, Jesus knew that Peter would spectacularly fail him by denying that he knew him three times. Just a few hours before Peter found himself stood by the fire whilst Jesus was being illegally questioned and interrogated by Annas, Jesus had told Peter that he would deny him. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter's denial of Jesus wasn't something that caught him out. It wasn't something that surprised him. Jesus knew exactly how Peter would behave. He knew exactly what Peter would do. He knew how spectacularly Peter would deny him, would fail him, denying that he was his disciple, denying that he even knew him, and yet Jesus still chose Peter. Having denied Jesus twice, verse 27 says, again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a cock began to crow. When we read passages like this, it's good to stop and examine our own lives, isn't it? It's easy to look at Peter and think, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that, or I'm not as bad as Peter. But it's a good chance, it's kind of a mirror to hold up to ourselves and ask ourselves about our own lives. It's good to stop and examine our own lives and ask ourselves whether, like Peter, our actions, our speech, our behavior are sometimes a denial of Jesus. Are there things in your life, are there things that you say and do, maybe places that you've been going, things that you've been looking at that are in effect a denial of Jesus. You may or may not have actually denied knowing him. You might have denied being a believer in Jesus, maybe or maybe not, but by your very actions perhaps, you're denying Jesus' lordship over your life. It's one thing to say, I, I believe in Jesus and I love Jesus, but then sometimes our actions effectively deny that statement. If you know that's you today, if you know as you look, kind of look in the mirror, as you look in the mirror of the Bible as it were and examine your own life, if you know that's you, 
then can I encourage you to do what Peter did, which was to go out and weep bitterly? Because that is the sign of true repentance. If there's something sinful that you're engaged in, if there's a way that you're living that is a, in reality a denial of Jesus, then can I urge you to use today as a wake-up call? Can I urge you today to use today as a wake-up call? Just as the cockerel crowed that night in Peter's life and kind of brought him back to reality, maybe it's doing the same today in your life, not a cockerel, but the Holy Spirit. Perhaps this afternoon, speaking to you, challenging you, bringing you back to a state of, okay, this is where I'm at. What if the Holy Spirit is speaking into your life this afternoon? If that is happening, the question is, what will you do about it? How will you respond to the gentle prodding, the gentle convicting of the Holy Spirit? In Luke's account, we read that Jesus looked out and his eyes met Peter's. And in that moment, Peter was kind of brought back to reality, and he remembered what Jesus had said to him. And Luke says he went out and he wept bitterly. I don't know if you've ever gone out and wept bitterly. You might have physically done that. I've certainly done that at times. I wonder if you've done perhaps the equivalent of it, at the very least, when you've been brought face to face with your sin or with your failure to live for God as you know you should. I can certainly identify with Peter with that sense of shame and embarrassment and regret, knowing that I've let God down and that I've sinned against him in some way. And there's been times when, like Peter, I have wept bitterly, and it may be that that's where you're at right now, maybe not physically weeping, but inside feeling absolutely rubbish and just feeling so ashamed and so regretful for what you've done. You're a believer in Jesus, and like Peter, you love him and you want to follow him, but you've blown it and you've made a mess of things. And it might only be you that knows that you've blown it, but you know all the same. And you know that God knows even if nobody else knows. If like Peter, you've blown it and you've let God down, and right now you feel like going outside and weeping bitterly, then can I say the following things to you? Firstly, it's absolutely right that we mourn over our sin. Sin is incredibly serious, and if we've messed up, then it's absolutely right that, like Peter, we are deeply regretful for our sin. We should absolutely mourn over our sin. After all, it was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Mourning over our sin is a sign of true repentance. And if someone says, I'm a Christian, but they then don't really show any regret or no real issue about carrying on sinning, then you have to question whether they're truly repenting or not. Mourning over our sin is a real sign of true repentance. But secondly, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you need to remember that you're already forgiven. And you've already been made holy. You don't need to be forgiven all over again, and you don't need to somehow kind of work your way back into God's good good books. You're already in God's good books because of what Jesus has done for you. So we don't need to stay in a kind of place of weeping bitterly over our sin and mourning and thinking, oh, what a mess I've made. We should absolutely do that and feel that. That's confession. It's repentance. It's certainly right that we weep bitterly or the equivalent of that, but having done so, we need to move on. Because if we've trusted in Jesus, then all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and even the future ones. And we've been made holy. We are forgiven and we are holy. Jesus is there right now in heaven representing us before the Father, and he's reminding God the Father that he's already dealt with our sin. 
So yes, we should mourn. Yes, we should mourn over our sins. But having done that, we need to move on and to celebrate what God has already done for us, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Thirdly, you need to remember that like Peter, God chose you, and when he did so, he knew exactly what he was getting. When God chose you, before this world was even created, God knew exactly what your life would be like. There is nothing in your life that you've done or will yet do which is going to catch God by surprise. God will never wake up. God doesn't, wake, doesn't sleep anyway, but God will never kind of do the equivalent of waking up and think, oh, if only I'd known that Andy was going to do this today, I would never have chosen him. That's not how it works. God chose me. He chose you if you've trusted in Jesus before this world was even created. And he did so knowing every single thing about you. Just think, how many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died for you on the cross? All of them. And when Jesus died for you, he knew every sin that you'd ever commit. And Peter's denial didn't catch Jesus by surprise and neither has your sin. Paul writes these words in Romans 5. He says, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us, not halfway through our life, not when, he, when we got it all sorted out, when we were still sinners. 2,000 years ago, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you when you were still a sinner. All your sins were still future when Jesus died for you. And knowing every single sin that you and I would ever commit, Jesus still chose to open his hands and to receive the nails as he was nailed to the cross for you and for me. Now, that's not an excuse to go out and behave like we want or to sin as we please, quite the opposite. It's because God chose us, it's because Jesus died for us, knowing all about our sin, that we should want to do all that we can to then go on and live a life that pleases him. But if and when we do sin and let God down, which we do and we will, then we need to remember that God knew everything about us. He knew everything we'd ever do, every single way we'd ever let him down. And he loved us and he chose us just the same. Jesus knew everything about me when he chose me and when he died for me just as he did with Peter. So if you've made a mess of things, and if you feel like Peter today, then absolutely you should mourn, you should confess your sin, you should mourn for what you've done, but move on in repentance and celebrate God's grace to you. Celebrate the fact that God chose you knowing the very worst about you, and yet still sent his one and only son to die for you there on the cross. I think it's worth exploring briefly what we mean when we talk about denying Jesus, because Jesus does say this in Matthew 10, 33. He says, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. But what Jesus is talking about there is when somebody makes that deliberate choice to reject Jesus and wants nothing to do with him and refuses to surrender their life to him. It's what we call, sometimes call the sin of apostasy. And apostasy is when a person abandons or renounces their Christian belief or key elements of the Christian faith. And that's a very, very different situation to somebody who genuinely puts their faith and trust in Jesus, but then falls into a temporary sin. Because the reality is that we all do that, don't we, if we're honest, in one way or another on a daily basis. And we all deny Jesus by our actions from time to time. Peter sinned by denying that he knew Jesus and denying that he was one of Jesus' disciples because of the fear of people. Peter feared men more than he feared God. But he hadn't rejected Jesus. He still believed in Jesus, which is why he was there in the first place. He wanted to know what was happening to Jesus, and he wanted to protect him. It had only been a, perhaps half an hour earlier that he tried to defend Jesus by hacking off uh, the, the man's ear with his sword. 
but in the pressure of the moment, and we can probably all identify with this, in the pressure of the moment, he's asked a question, he feels under huge pressure, and he blows it, and he lets Jesus down, and he says the wrong thing. And that's probably something that we've all done in one way or another. Probably something that we do far more regularly, far more than we'd like to admit. Verse 17 says, You're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. And at the same time as Peter stood warming himself by the fire denying Jesus, John tells us that Jesus was in the house of Annas being illegally interrogated. Verse 19 says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his teaching, sorry, about his disciples and his teaching. And John really skillfully narrates this section for us with Peter on the one hand spectacularly blowing it and letting Jesus down by lying and denying that he even knew him, while Jesus, on the other hand, is consistently telling the truth and being the truth, and he is the source of the truth. Jesus is the truth, and as James says, he doesn't change like shifting shadows, which was certainly what Peter was doing. Peter was stood by a fire with shadows perhaps moving all the time, which was a kind of picture of what Peter's own life was at that point. As James writes, Jesus isn't like that. God isn't like that. God doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's constant. He's constant. He carries on in steadfastness. The trial was illegal in many different ways. Under Jewish law, the defendant couldn't be questioned. They shouldn't, by, uh, by law, have questioned Jesus. It was meant to be the witnesses for the prosecution who were questioned and examined. But there weren't any witnesses because Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. Verse 21, Jesus says, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus is pointing them back to what they should have been doing, and they were breaking this law. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus was steadfast and consistent and unchanging, even though he was on the receiving end of a miscarriage of justice and was being physically assaulted. And as John really skillfully records these events for us, he captures the contrast between Peter on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Jesus is the truth, Peter lies. Jesus is constant and unchanging, Peter is like a shifting shadow. Jesus obeys the Jewish law and tries to get his interrogators to do the same. Peter breaks one of the Ten Commandments by lying. And John has created this huge contrast between Jesus and Peter, who is, of course, just like us, isn't he? And the point is that Peter is a failure, and so are we. Peter messes up, and so do we. Peter denies Jesus, and so do we in all kinds of different ways. Jesus, on the other hand, is sinless, and, P and Jesus never does anything wrong. Jesus is everything that Peter could never be, and Jesus is everything that we could never be. And the point is this, our salvation isn't dependent on how good we are, it's dependent on how good Jesus is. If we've trusted in Jesus, then our forgiveness, our relationship with God, our eternal life, all of those things are not dependent on how well we behave or perform. And I'm so glad that that's the case, because if that was the case for me, I would be finished a long time ago. It's not dependent on how well I behave or perform or how well you behave or perform. It's dependent on how Jesus behaved and how Jesus performed. We put our faith in Jesus to deal with our sins and our failures because there's nothing that we can do to, short, to sort out our shortcomings. 
Our very best will never be good enough for God, never be good enough to meet God's holy, perfect standard. And that's why we need to put our faith in Jesus and rely on Him instead. That's not an excuse to live as we want, quite the opposite. But knowing that we're relying on Jesus' constancy and His perfection should set us free. It takes the pressure off us to try to be what we can never be, knowing that Jesus is all that we can never be. Like Peter, we often mess up. We let Jesus down in all sorts of different ways. I certainly do. And and whilst we should absolutely mourn over our sin and repent of it, isn't it wonderful to know that our relationship with God isn't dependent on how good we are, but how good Jesus is? Isn't that good? I hope that encourages you this afternoon. Our relationship with God does not depend on how good we are. It depends on how good Jesus is. And this account of Peter and Jesus is really an account of us and Jesus, isn't it? We do the equivalent, don't we? I I certainly do, of standing by the fire, warming ourselves as we deny Jesus by our actions and by our speech. Whilst Jesus is representing us, not in an illegal trial in front of the Jewish high priest, but in the courtroom of heaven. The same John that wrote John's gospel writes these words in his first letter later on in the New Testament. He says, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus has done and continues to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is make us right with God. And despite the fact that we're often like Peter, Jesus is there 24 hours a day representing us before God the Father because he's already dealt with our sins when he died on the cross. The trial of Jesus was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world, but God used the sin of wicked and evil people to achieve his plan of salvation. God turned the sin of evil people into a force for good because it was the means by which Jesus died for our sins and made it possible for each one of us to be saved. And God was able to redeem Peter's denial of Jesus so that Peter would eventually go on and a few short weeks and months later, he would go on to be the great leader of the early church. What a, what a transformation. He'd gone in such a mess and then within a short space of time, he was there leading the church and he preaches and 3,000 people become Christians. What a transformation. God is able to turn those situations around and he redeems him and he redeems those situations. You know, God never wants us to sin. And he always hates our sin, as should we. But God is able to turn them around and redeem our situations. There's nothing that you've done or are yet to do that is too big for God to forgive, for God to deal with, for God to redeem and turn around. So if, like Peter, you've made a bit of a mess of things, then yes, weep over your sin, confess it to God, but then move on in repentance and in faith, knowing that Jesus knew the very worst about you when he died on the cross but chose you just the same. And like Peter, pick yourself up and move on and allow God to redeem the situation and and do great things in you in the weeks and months and years ahead in your life. Maybe today that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never put your faith and trust in him. Maybe you're a little bit hostile to to Jesus or you're, you're questioning in verse 23 says, If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? I wonder what you will do with Jesus. What will you do with what Jesus says? What will you do with what Jesus says to you today? 
Are you rejecting Jesus? Are you doing the equivalent of striking Jesus around the face? Are you hostile towards Jesus? Or will you recognize him as the only way, the only truth, and the only life? Are you still questioning Jesus? Or are you ready to accept who he is, what he says, and what he's done for you? Will you surrender your life to him and put your faith and trust in him to take your sin away so that he can make you right with God? Let's just take a few moments to pause and reflect on what we've looked at today. I wonder what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this afternoon. Let's just, if you're comfortable doing that, maybe just close your eyes, bow our heads, and just take a few moments to, to stop and reflect and think and hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Father, we thank you for your love to us. Thank you that you know everything about us. Thank you that you know every word that comes out of our mouth, even before we've even thought it. Thank you that you love us just the same. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were prepared to die for us, knowing every single sin that we'd ever commit. And Father, we confess that we so often let you down. We are so often like Peter. Lord, we come to you this afternoon and we pray that you'd forgive us for when we're those times when we let you down, when we mess up. Help us to move on. Help us to, yes, repent and mourn our sin, but help us to embrace and celebrate your goodness and your forgiveness and your love to us. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are what, all that we can never be. Thank you that we don't need to work our way to heaven. We can just trust in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love. We thank you that no matter how much of a mess we make of things, we thank you that if we've trusted in you, we are safe in your hands. You will hold us fast. You will hold us in your hand. You will hold our soul for eternity. You will keep us to the end. Help us to treasure this truth and help us to live for you in the light of it. We give you thanks this afternoon in the name of Jesus. Amen.